Autism is an enigma, a disabling neurodevelopmental disorder. The incidence of autism has increased almost 60-fold since the late 1970s. There is no consensus on the causes of autism, but signs increasingly point to a combination of factors, including environmental factors. If the environment is partly to blame for autism, can a change in the environment alter its course? These are the questions researchers are striving to answer. And this is Green Street. Hello again, and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of medical professionals, researchers, public health experts, reporters, authors, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand just a bit more of what is going on in the environment around you and how you and your family can live a safer and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're going to talk about the environmental links to autism with the amazing and brilliant Dr. Martha Herbert, a pediatric neurologist, neuroscientist, systems thinker, and writer. That's coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? So I have three articles that are interesting, and they are all uh, about issues that we have covered pretty extensively on our show. The first one is from Grist. Org, and the title is The Petrochemical Industry is Convincing States to Deregulate Plastic Incineration. Oh the petrochemical industry has spent the past few years hard at work lobbying for state-level legislation to promote chemical recycling, a controversial process that critics say isn't really recycling at all. The legislative push, spearheaded by an industry group called the American Chemistry Council, aims to reclassify chemically recycling as a manufacturing process rather than waste disposal, a move that would subject facilities to less stringent regulations concerning pollution and hazardous waste. The strategy appears to be working. According to a new report from the nonprofit Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, or GAIA, 20 states have passed bills to exempt chemical recycling facilities from waste management requirements, despite significant evidence that most facilities end up incinerating the plastic they receive. Quote, these facilities are in actuality waste to toxic oil plants, processing plastic to turn it into a subpar and polluting fuel, end quote, the report says. It called for federal regulation to crack down on the plastic industry's misinformation and affirm chemical recycling status as a waste management process. You have to admire the American Chemistry Council for their boldness in trying, oh. to, trying to pretend that burning plastic is not a toxic problem. We're going to call it something else, and we want less right. regulation. And this is part of these bills that are being passed in states across the country called Extended Producer Responsibility, or EPR, bills. And they're heavily favoring the industry, and they're just calling them, you know, recycling bills. This is where we're going we're gonna to take care of it. We're going to recycle all this plastic. It sounds great. Isn't great. No. Okay. What else you got? Okay, here's another study, very interesting, written by Keeley Brewer from the Daily Memphian and Eva Testfe from Harvest Public Media. And the title is, Study Finds That Mississippi River Basin Could Be in an Extreme Heat Belt in 30 Years. A climate study released during one of the hottest summers on record predicts a 125 degree extreme heat belt will stretch across a quarter of the country by 2053. 
Within the next 30 years, 107 million people, mostly in the central U.S., are expected to experience temperatures exceeding 125 degrees, a threshold that the National Weather Service categorizes as extreme danger. That's 13 times more than the current population experiencing extreme heat. The hottest cities, according to the study, will be Kansas City, Missouri, St. Louis, Memphis, Tennessee, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Chicago. Quote, this is really off the charts of the scales that we've developed to measure these kinds of things, end quote, said Bradley Wilson, the director of research and development at First Street Foundation, the New York-based climate research nonprofit that developed the model. Temperatures are expected to increase by 2.5 degrees over the next three decades. Warmer air retains water, creating more humid conditions and compounding heat indexes. The study finds that on average, the number of extremely hot days will more than double over the next three decades. In Kansas, for example, the temperature soared above 98 degrees for seven days this year. By 2053, Kansans can expect 20 days at that temperature. Younger children, older adults, people with chronic medical conditions, people who are low income, athletes and outdoor workers are most vulnerable to extreme heat, according to the Centers for Disease Control. The agency reports an average of more than 67,000 emergency department visits due to heat annually. And that is going to grow. Do we still have climate deniers out there who are saying there's no such thing as, as yes. climate change? Yes. <sighs> How, how climate is deniers that, are basically the people who don't want to put any money into reducing our our use of fossil fuels and you know yeah. putting just thinking about the future. No, because you know they they're invested in these companies that are polluting the planet and causing this just incredible increase in uh, in extreme weather events as well as this heat. Scary. Yeah, it's very scary. Okay, what else you got? Okay, and the last one is published in uh, news.yale.edu. The title is Proximity to Fracking Sites Associated with Risk of Childhood Cancer. Pennsylvania children living near fracking developments at birth were two to three times more likely to be diagnosed with leukemia between the ages of two and seven than those who did not live near this oil and gas activity, a novel study from the Yale School of Public Health finds. The registry-based study included nearly 2,500 Pennsylvania children, 405 of whom were diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, the most common type of cancer in children. For communities living nearby, fracking can pose a number of potential threats. Chemical threats include air pollution from vehicle emissions and well and road construction, and water pollution from hydraulic fracturing or spills of wastewater. Hundreds of chemicals have been reportedly used in injection water or detected in wastewater, some of which are known or suspected to be cancer-causing. This work adds to a growing body of literature on fracking exposure and children's health used to inform policy, such as the distances between a private residence or other sensitive location and a fracking well. Current setback distances are the subject of much debate in the United States, with some calling for setback distances to be lengthened to as much as 1,000 meters. The allowable setback in Pennsylvania, where the study was conducted, is 500 feet. When we were working on getting New York State to ban fracking, we went to Pennsylvania, yeah. and we saw how close people live to these fracking sites. We also saw how close they lived to these to these these streams and these rivers where the fracking waste was illegally dumped. 
And, you know, people were really living in an extremely toxic environment. Didn't childhood leukemia used to be more rare than, I mean, what did they find, 400 children? with 405 ch children. That seems like a lot of kids with leukemia. Well, this is out of 2,500 Pennsylvania children, um, which is a, a, a very significant number. Yeah. Maybe this, maybe children, I don't know. What, what moves an industry that knowingly exposes the public, especially vulnerable people? Money, that's about it. All right, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Dr. Martha Herbert has been a pioneer in the field of pediatric neurology, fascinated with how the brain functions and how various environmental insults can impact that process. She earned her medical degree at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, then trained in pediatrics at Cornell New York Hospital and in neurology, child neurology, and neurodevelopmental disorders at Mass General. She served on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. We recorded this interview with Dr. Herbert a few years ago, but autism continues to plague families across the nation, and we are still struggling to understand its origins. Here's our interview with Dr. Martha Herbert. So let me ask you, there's a, a, a general perception there that, that genes are the things that are controlling this, that you're either born with the genes that are going to inevitably lead you down the road to autism or you're not born with those genes. And it's kind of a, you know, I think a lot of people think this is just kind of Russian roulette. You don't really have a choice. Well, this is a, an out-of-date conception of genes. And it's very common. Most people, you know, it's been in the press for years and years. Genes are not a blueprint. They give information, they bias the system, but the current best thinking in systems biology is something we call multi-scale biology. Yeah, you've got genes, but then you've got the chemicals, the proteins and the other chemicals that the genes help shape. But those interactions among those different chemicals, they aren't determined by the genes. No. Those interactions have a life of their own. And new things happen that can't particularly be predicted by the genes themselves, all the more so because the way it plays out is shaped by the environment. And now the environment is a giant buzzword, so let me take it apart in this situation. In order to make the materials in your body, genes need the right amino acids, they need the right nutrients for the enzymes and catalysts that make the chemical reactions, and they need not to be interfered with by toxicants or other things. Mm -hmm. And in the setting of our society with processed food and a lot of toxicants and EMF and so forth, we have a high likelihood of missing out on things we need to make to build our bodies properly and interference. And enzymes can be interfered with, genes can be damaged. So just to say that the genes that are passed on determine everything is not really the way it works. And then there's the whole other topic of which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. That's called epigenetics. All of the cells in our body have the same genes, but your liver genes, the ones that are running your liver, aren't the same ones that are running your kidneys. You know, your body makes a lot of choices, and it changes 
from the time you're an embryo and a fetus through birth, through childhood, and so forth. And the way they're turned on and turned off is very much affected by the physical environment and by the socio-emotional environment and by the and by the physical environment. I can include, you know, electromagnetic fields and so forth. So it's really much more of a richly interactive system. Like if you take a bunch of people and they're going to a concert and they're waiting online, you know, you could take each of them and say this is what they're like. But when they get in there, something happens and the whole group does something different than they would ever have done separately. You know, we need metaphors like that because that's what happens. The genes are there. They shape it. They shape the strong points, the weak points, the vulnerabilities, but they're not the final arbiter. That's actually a great metaphor. Very, very useful. Let me just ask you a question because I've been thinking about it as you've been speaking. When we're talking about the environment, do you actually look at the timing of this this increase in autism diagnoses and the presence of particular environmental exposures like EMFs, which you just spoke about, but also maybe genetically modified foods or looking in the bigger picture of what is it over the past 30 years or 25 years that has increased along with this increase of autism? That's a really interesting question. And I think I have a perspective on that that's somewhat unusual. Okay. Um, I would like to collect all the graphs that people have sent me or that I've seen showing the precipitous exponential increase of autism next to the precipitous exponential increase of something else, mm-hmm. like Tylenol or GMOs or EMF or various vaccine ingredients or a whole variety of other things. And the way I look at it, there isn't ever going to be the thing that's causing autism. The way I look at it is that the problem is the breakdown of the way our body's working. And the reason I say that is every single one of those things I just mentioned that people want to blame autism on as a the key thing, vitamin D, it's another one, actually they converge on a set of vulnerabilities in our body's physiology, in our body's biochemistry. The methylation pathways, the glutathione, the detox, they, those pathways break down. They break down in similar ways from most of those problems. And so the way I think of autism is about total load, the total pileup of noxious burden combined with the insufficiency of our nutrient-depleted soils and the food that comes out of those soils. And the combination of too much burden and not enough support that's where the autism comes from in invulnerable individuals who may have particular extreme stress at one point or another. Like I met a woman at a conference last weekend. She has a 29-year-old son who's better, but he had a very high fever at six months old, and after that he was autistic. You know, so that he couldn't handle that, and his brain just said, okay, I give up. I'm mm. going to change the way I function because I can't produce the previous function. But I really, and I'm, I'm really concerned that very well-meaning environmental people are trying to find a culprit or a few culprits, mm-hmm. and that's not the problem. And not only sure. that, it's dangerous in the sense that if you're looking for signal from a few things, 
Whereas actually the problem is a giant pylon. Right, right. You're, miss, you're missing things. all those you other things. You might reach the false, you might get a false negative. Right. Because no one thing is the thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's the, the total accumulated bad judgment that we're living in the middle of that's making more and more people sick. With autism being an extreme case, but nothing particularly unique about it at the physiological level. So, so, so how are we going to go about this? You know, teasing out the effect of a single environmental exposure is, you know, next to impossible. And, of course, we don't do studies on humans. You could spend the rest of your life doing that, whereas there's a lot of things you can do to support the physiology. Right now, we know how to support the physiology. We don't need to know the effects of every single... I mean, it's hopeless. You can't get funded to do it. The, regular, the whole approach to regulation... I went to a neurotoxicology meeting in Texas in 2007. I mean, they meet all over, but that year it was in Texas. And the head of the society said, look, we now know two things that we didn't know when most of you guys went to graduate school. One of them is that there's no cutoff below which something can be presumed to be safe because extremely low doses can still perturb and disrupt signaling processes at the molecular level. So you can't just be, there are big effects, but there are also effects. I mean, Tyrone Hayes is getting a lot of difficulty because he pointed out that atrazine can cause problems at 30,000 times smaller Below. levels than the, exactly. the, the toxic level. So we know that very, very low de- levels can cause problems, and we know that things act differently in combination than they do one at a time. But the professionals are trained to look at one thing at a time, and the regulation is designed to look at one thing at a time. So meanwhile, we're piling up this giant mess with all these interactions, and we're not developing fast enough the methodologies to deal with it at that level. So you said you now know two things. This is how they started off. There's no cutoff below which something can be considered safe. And what's the second one? That things, that there are synergies there okay. are additive effects right. and there are multiplicative effects. So A and B and C can do a whole lot of things that, together that they wouldn't even come close to doing by themselves. Right. They can do it a little bit, a lot, or way more than if you would predict if you just added up their individual impacts. Yeah. And, and so the question posed to the group was, okay, folks, how do we deal with this? Mm. And it was really the most existential discussion I have ever experienced at a scientific meeting, because everybody knew what the que- that the questions were valid and the issues were valid, but people weren't particularly ready to change around how they did everything. It wasn't that they were opposed to changing, but they didn't know where to start. Exactly. I was interested to see, you know, you use this phrase, autism spectrum conditions, rather than the phrase which the CDC uses, which is autism spectrum disorders. Do you have an optimism about whether or not, uh, you know, you could walk back a bit from autism? Whether, I mean, is that Well, autism- in fact, yes. There's a lot. There are thousands of people who have lost their diagnosis. I think that's the single most critical issue. And what I'm doing is setting up infrastructure to track that prospectively. I should say, and this is actually, I didn't mention it to you in what I sent you, but I'm working on a movie called the Canary Kids movie. And we're building, what we're going to do is take 14 kids with seven diagnoses, autism, allergies, asthma, ADHD, obesity, uh, diabetes, and 
take 18 months to get them from the condition they're in to pretty much recovery the best we can, taking data along the way so that we can show that this is possible and that there's processes in the body that can be measured so that we can understand how these people get better and then to reverse engineer it. Because this, this is totally yeah, fascinating. This is really cool. And 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 the way you're doing this where you're not just taking autistic children but you're also taking children who suffer from other physiological disorders um and deficits and and you know so showing that you know this is not only impacting a child's brain but it's also impacting um you know other other critical um body Absolutely. systems. But the, the 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 link for that is Canary Kids movie. I just and we have a trailer that we're going to be releasing shortly. We, it's a gorgeous trailer. We're just shortening it a little bit. So I'm working on the movie as a case study. I'm working on some cohorts. I'm working with the Open Medicine Institute to develop data interface that, so that people can track these things and we can, so that we can ask the right questions in a database, which hasn't been done. Right. And then we, because we, I feel that we need to address this on a scale that isn't being addressed and, in, and involve people in this in a different way. Because if you take the model that I was saying, that this is total load, you can't narrow it so much because you're going to miss the point. So we need to set up a research infrastructure that's not reductionist, but that's systems oriented. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I decided to just bite the bullet. I mean, I realize it's a big bullet to bite, but more and more people <laughs> are coming along with me and my colleagues on this. So sure. in the Canary Kids uh, project, are, you're removing from their environments things that that yeah. are, might be affecting them? Are you and, changing and it, diet? Change, and changing, so? what, are, what are the things that you're doing? Yeah, right. So we're going to be having a, a team of medical mentors, which will include going to the house, and educating the family on the stuff, the products that they may have, which could be problematic, all the things with all the long chemical names that maybe there's another way of doing it that you can get out from under your sink. Yeah, clean, cleaning products, cabinet. personal care products, plastics, maybe right. electromagnetic so, fields and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so people often just don't know. Right. And, and work with the food, work with basic characterization, a basic set of what we're calling predictive biomarkers, and then track the response as we correct the underlying functional vulnerabilities of these individuals. Because from our point of view, now this is a way of getting back to your genetics question. The genetic vulnerabilities may vary from one individual to another. And so if two people with different genetic backgrounds get hit with similar toxicants, one may go down one pathway of deterioration, like they may get asthma, and another one may go get diabetes. But a lot of the ways that the body reacts, the inflammation, the oxidative stress, is pretty similar across a vast array of chronic illnesses ranging from autism, allergies, and all the stuff, obesity, to cancer and cardiovascular disease, to neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Parkinson's, and Lou Gehrig's disease. And a lot of those physiological problems are either caused or made worse by the pileup of diverse environmental substances. And in that, it may be so that some substances predispose 
to certain illnesses and other substances predisposed to other ones. But it's also the case that the extent to which you're vulnerable is based on your health status. And if you never really had high nutrient density food and never really had a fully resilient system, you're going to get kicked down that path more easily, and if you have certain genetic vulnerabilities, even more so. So what we're going to try and do is look at, begin to show what it looks like to look at the commonalities and differences amongst a set of of diverse conditions, which are all epidemic right now in the childhood population. Man, it's so interesting. I wanted to ask you about, uh, I was on the CDC website this morning looking at some of the statistics from their study, and one of the things that jumped out at me was the difference in um, geographical territory. In other words, they had one in uh, in 175 children in Alabama, but one in 45 children in New Jersey. What could account for that? Well, there was an amazing study by Andre Rajetsky, and they actually looked at 100 million people. How did they do that through insurance company records and things like that? Mm. And they showed a correlation for every... I think it was 1% increase in hypospadias, which is a disorder of Mm -hmm. where the urethra comes out of the male penis. Right. And that's going up. There was a 238% increase in autism, and it's known that hypospadias is associated with toxicity. So they inferred that, and they found that there were these geographical pockets, but they were linking it to a marker of toxicity. I thought that was an incredibly important study. That was a pesticide study, right? There was, was that the? Uh... Well, it wasn't just pesticide because you you know you, yeah pesticides are implicated, but it's really about if the marker is the hypospadias, you're not nailing it to any one thing. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about this for a second. You were talking about the changes in the digestive, immune, endocrine, and other body systems can change the way a brain functions. But let me just focus on on male female for a second because you were talking about hypospadias. So we have more males diagnosed with autism than females. What are your thoughts here? That's a, that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> okay. But I, would, would that have something to do? I mean, would that have mean that there's some relationship to hormones or, or hormone-disrupting chemicals possibly in the environment? totally looking at that. People are also looking at the question of whether it's been proposed that estrogen is more protective and testosterone more potentiates problems, mm-hmm. but I don't know how far the research has gone on that. There's also uh, genes for glutathione that apparently are on the X chromosome, so it may be that when you have a problem with some of those genes, you won't have a second set to back you up in the boys, because mm-hmm. you only have one X chromosome. I don't think it's really settled, but I think it's like part of the holy grail we need to chase to figure out this. It's also fascinating, like in autoimmune diseases that hit in kind of mid-adulthood, there's more females than males, and actually a lot of the mothers of kids with autism can have autoimmune conditions of somewhat greater than the general population prevalence. Are there different times of life where you would get hit with the same thing and respond to it in a different way? Mm. Um, Can I just throw in a quick question I meant to ask you before, and that is that when we're talking about you might have a genetic susceptibility, so many parents are saying there's nothing in our family Nobody in our family ever had this. Well, the problem with that, I agree with them, but 
the problem with that whole thing is that if you're looking for the behaviors, you may not find them, but there may be subtle metabolic vulnerabilities. It's just that they were never challenged by the environment so much. So I think the question of how come so many people have autism without a family history is absolutely critical. I want to ask you, if I'm a parent of an autistic child and I'm listening to this conversation, I'm thinking I should probably make some changes in my, in around my, my house and my child's environment. Are there things that, uh, you know, that jump out at you as being more important than others? Well, absolutely. Well, you know, I wrote a book, Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be. You can get it hardbound, paperback, MP3, or Kindle. And we, my, my writer and I, we, we talked about food, toxins, bugs, and stress. And I wrote this book for parents who can't find a good practitioner near them. I mean, their pediatrician may just tell them it's hopeless. And they're on their own, which is what it is with most parents, unfortunately, for the time being. You really, really need high nutrient density food. Just lose the junk food, lose the processed food. I talk in, in the book about green smoothies, high, lots and lots of vegetables, different colors of the rainbow, uh, healthy fats, and so forth. There are eight cases in the literature of children with autism who actually had scurvy because the kids on their own self-restrict their diet so much that they can get severe malnutrition. So you've really got to counter that. You can get them interested over time in new foods. You can have to give it a number of months. Let them play with it. Let them mess with it. They're not going to eat it the first time you give it to them. They have to get, they're very stressed out all the time. So you have to make it safe for them, and it's not going to happen overnight. So that's the first thing. The second thing is toxins. Reduce your toxic exposure in every way you possibly can because their bodies can't handle it. The third is bugs, and there's the good bugs. Our gut bugs, the, what we've been hearing more, our gut microbiome, there's 10 trillion organisms that are supposed to live in our guts. We don't treat them right. We feed them junk food, and so the weeds, the bad guys grow, and the, the, other, the, the healthy ones are crowded out. Oral antibiotics kill them off, and they don't all grow back. Pesticides. So traditional cultures used fermented foods. There's yogurts in the store, but that, they usually have sugar, and the cultures aren't always that good. You can ferment your own food, vegetables, and there's a lot of recipes online, and it should be something that's a part of a drill if I were to tell anybody just one thing to do, I would say fermented foods and then lose the sugar because the sugar undoes what the fermented food does. And finally, stress. People kind of want their kids to go at their pace, but the kids really can't follow multi-stage instructions. So you've got to go slow. What my friend Brenda Smith-Miles, who's an educator, says, twice as, half as much in twice the time. And actually, that would be good for the rest of us, too. Mm-hmm. You can't get your kid out the door in a hurry if they have a problem anywhere near the autism spectrum conditions. And then you have to luxuriate in your child the way they are. One of the things that's really hard on their kids is they know they have a problem. And if everybody's trying to make them something that they don't know how to be, it's just going to get worse for them. You have to let them be the way they are. And there's a really good book on this by a friend and teacher of mine, Anat Baniel, B-A-N-I-E-L, called Kids Beyond Limits, that really talks you through ways of dealing with a special needs child so that you actually help them learn. You've got to get out of the way, and then you've got to help them actually be able to learn, even in the midst of their difficulties. 
So those are the things that I would recommend. Food, toxins, bugs, stress, and love them just the way they are as right now, whatever that may be. And that will give them the space to come out of their shell and start to take in the world. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our special guest today, Dr. Martha Herbert. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Until then, please be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.